0: Let's pray. Almighty God, we look to you. We thank you for our adoption into your family, that we are indeed a child of God. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand this portion of your word and in so doing grow in our assurance. That uh, that we indeed belong to you, not as a slave, not as a servant, but as a child of the true and living God. Amen. I've got to say, as I'm working my way through Romans eight, this is not the first time I've preached through it um, in my ministry. Uh, I am however for the first time it's just becoming a part of me and um i am very jealous for you to understand the book of of uh, or the romans chapter 8 um as deeply as uh god has been revealing it to me over these last few weeks that's one of the reasons why we're going at a snail's pace uh here in romans 8 but uh, to remind you, last week uh, I mentioned that we're headed towards Romans eight seventeen, uh, that last verse that Lou just read. That if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might be glorified; that we may also be glorified with Him. And remember how I said last week that we get to Romans eight from Romans 7. In other words, Paul saying, for I know that that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so I was asking the question, how do we get from that point in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, to Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where we are willing to suffer with Him and be glorified with Him? Uh, remember how I said it's a long trip. It's like from New York City to Los Angeles. Uh, by car, but actually more appropriately New York City to Hawaii by car. In other words, there's a miracle needed because it's not something we can do on our own. One of the things that I realized after I used that illustration last week about the trip is that I may have given the impression if we're traveling from New York City to Hawaii, that we leave New York City behind. If New York City is Romans chapter 7, we never leave Romans chapter 7 behind. It goes with us. Wherever we travel in life, Romans 7 is there. Even as believers, the very thing we want to do, we don't do. The very thing we hate, we end up doing. As we travel through life, as children of God, as redeemed by God, as forgiven by God, there's still an aspect of our lives that's wretched because we disobey God um, by doing what He commands us not to do and by not doing those things that He does command us to do. My final point last week We talked about mortification. Declaring war on sin. Putting sin to death. And so, as we're traveling toward glory, one of the things that we're called to do is put sin to death. And so think about that in relation to Romans 7. This aspect of wretchedness still remains in us. The flesh, Still waging war, um, and we are called to put to death every sin. Yet we still have this wretchedness within us. Can you see how how um, how how difficult the battle is? Romans seven is the battlefield on which we are to put sin to death. And so, what we Uh, what we find is that we are our own worst enemy. And we're tempted to fall back. We're tempted to think we can't be obedient, why even try? We're tempted to fall back to to Romans 8.13 that says if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so we're tempted to live according to the flesh because we think there's no hope of us actually being obedient because the very thing we want to do, we don't do. The very things we hate, we end up doing. But God has given us everything we need to grow as Christians, to be obedient to His Word in spite of Romans 7. And so, real quickly, a review. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus In other words, all your sins have been forgiven. All that you will receive from God on the day of judgment if you are in Jesus Christ is welcome and acceptance. And not only that, verses 2-4, through He has also set you free from the principle and power of sin and death. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are free to obey God. Sin no longer is your master. You have the ability to obey God. Um, We can fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law by our obedience as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul tells us, first thing he tells us to do, verse 5, is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is to remind you that there's a very close connection between our thinking and our living. Whatever you set your mind upon shapes your lifestyle and your character. And that's going to be very important. We're going to return to that um, at the very end of the sermon. But before Paul gives us the second step, he also reminds us um, of what God has done for us. We've been given an intimate relationship with Him. Verses 9-11. through Infinite relationship with the triune God. We've also been given a resurrection life Verse 11, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you, helping you be obedient to Him. And so God is saying, I not only have a relationship with you in Jesus Christ, where He says, I love you, but He also says, My power is at work in you. Amen. And so then he says in verses 12 and 13 that you are debtors. That you owe something. That you owe nothing to the flesh because God has set you free. Verse 12, but rather you are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And again, the temptations that beset us are so powerful the temptations we struggle with, the sins we struggle with, are so powerful they feel like, I must do this. But God says, no. There's no must any longer. You have been set free. So God has forgiven you. Verse 1. He has freed you from the power of sin and death. Verses 2-4. through He lives inside you and because he loves you so much, he is powerfully at work at you within you um, verses uh, six through nine. Therefore, you have an obligation. But remember what I said, verses five and six, your mental outlook is key. You approach the Christian life from Romans seven only, and you will be sorely tempted to have a defeatist outlook in the Christian life. The very thing I hate, that's what I end up doing. And you just kind of float through life hoping that you don't sin too badly. And so we, Paul has given us Romans 8 because he wants us to have a completely different outlook. He wants you to know that you are a dearly loved child of God. That's our passage this morning, verses 14-17. through Our adoption into God's family is the highest privilege that the Gospel offers. Listen again to verses 14-17. through For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. John Murray says that our adoption in Christ is surely the apex of grace and privilege. It's even higher than justification. You know, justification secures our forgiveness of sins, but adoption secures our entrance into God's family. The Christian is far more than a guest in God's presence. God has made us His children. We are nearer to God than the angels. The angels, they're servants of God. At best, they are good friends with God, maybe even best friends with God, but we're God's children. Consider some of the advantages that come along with adoption into God's family. First of all, there's security. We don't act out of fear of God's punishment. We don't act out of fear of being rejected by God. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. An employee acts out of fear of being fired. A servant acts out of fear of being punished by his master. But for a Christian, God is never the get you God. What's the get you God? The get you God is hanging, has his arm raised, ready for you to get out of line, either this way or that way, and he squishes you like a bug. That's the way a lot of people think about God. I've got to stay kind of in the straight enough line so he doesn't squish me. That is that that thought should not even enter into the mind of a Christian. Because in Christ you are His child. All you receive from Him is acceptance and welcome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves us. Even though we daily, even hour by hour, moment by moment, live out the truth of Romans chapter 7. You know, we haven't graduated from Romans 7, even though we're still in Romans, and now we're in Romans 8. We still, daily, many times daily, countless times daily, do the very thing that God says that He hates. And we don't do those things that God says that He loves. And yet, God says, You are my child. I love you. See, many Christians live more like orphans than adopted and dearly loved children, because Christ I'm sorry, because Christians live in fear of their um, let me start over there are many Christians who live in fear of their present circumstances. There are many Christians who live in fear of their future circumstances, and they worry and worry and worry. There are others who live in constant regret of their past circumstances. They can't believe that they have done this in their past. They can't get past it. There are others who live in fear of other people's opinions, and we could go on and on. Well, that is the attitude of an orphan. But a child of God says, I am forgiven. I am loved. I am welcomed and accepted by God Himself. In fact, the child of God, the Christian, says, Abba, Father. You don't need to live in fear of the present or the future or live in regret of the past or live in fear of other people's opinions. You don't have to do that. Again, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, you have security. You also have authority. We're not slaves, but we're sons. If you have the, a newer, updated version of the of the uh, um, New International Version, uh, one that's been printed since like 1984 or 1985, in your Bible it reads, "For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God." Well, it doesn't say "tekna" or "paidia," uh, the word, Greek words for children. It says "we uh, "weoi." Sons of God. We should never ever try to correct Scripture and think that we're wiser than Scripture. It says sons. The translation says say sons. Here's what happens, and why it's so important that the word uh, that we use the word sons. Now I know why they change it to children. You know it's considered insensitive these days, is considered to display male chauvinism to say sons rather than children using the more gender-neutral pronoun. But we should use sons because Scripture used sons. See, what happened was adoption in Paul's day usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for their estate. With no heir, they would adopt an heir to carry on um, the name and legacy of the family. And the person being adopted then took the place of the child in the family and had every privilege, every right as um, as an heir, as a son. And for this reason, because it was particularly... Uh, Adoption was particularly taking place to carry on the family name. Only uh, 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 males were adopted in this fashion. Women in Roman culture were still considered more like property. So Paul uses the term son instead of child. He uses sons instead of children. But then Paul applies this term sons without regard to gender distinction. In other words, look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Can females be led by the Spirit of God? Absolutely. And that's Paul's point. For all, all men, all women, even all children, who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. So men have full rights as heirs. Women have full rights as heirs. Children have full rights as theirs. In other words, Christian women should not, re- be, should not resent being called sons any more than any Christian man should resent being called part of the Bride of Christ. And so, because we are sons of God, verse 14, we have authority. The authority that comes with our sonship is vital for us to remember in our present culture. The world is more and more despising Christians. Uh, the world, To the world, we are becoming refuge and scum. We are ridiculed in the power structures of our culture so it is very important to remember that we are sons of God. It might be very easy for us to take on this identity that the culture is is, uh, placing upon us so that we might be tempted to hide our faith underneath a bushel, that we might not uh, feel as... Um, aggressive in sharing our faith because these people, they're just going to think we're weird. They're going to think that we're scum. We're not scum. We are children of the living God. We are sons of God. We are cloaked with His authority. We are vested with His honor. What a status that has been conferred upon us. 1 John You have an authority. You have a privilege. You have an honor as a child of God, as sons of God. You also have an intimacy with God. Instead of the fear of punishment and wrath, we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You all know that this word Abba is an Aramaic term that is best translated as daddy. It's a term of greatest uh, possible intimacy. And it illustrates the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. As a Christian, all you will ever receive from God is acceptance and welcome. You know, I crawl into my daddy's lap repeatedly Every day, I crawl into God's lap and I say to God, God, I know and You know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right because You put that desire in me when You made me a child of God. But I don't have the ability to carry it out for the good I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I do not want to do, Daddy, I keep on doing that. Please forgive me again. Please help me to stop dishonoring you. That's what Paul's saying here. We haven't received the spirit of fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We also have assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. What this passage is saying is that when we cry out, Abba Father, the Holy Spirit who has made our hearts His home, He comes alongside us. And inside our souls, He says very quietly, yet very powerfully, Yes, God is your Father, He is your daddy. And He really does love you very deeply. And so, it says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with us that we are children of God. But this witness is not purely subjective. Rather, He reminds us of the promises um, that we find in the Word of God. And He takes God's Word those promises that He loves us. Those promises that we are forgiven. Those promises of welcome. Those promises that we will, we will not be condemned. For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And He magnifies them in our soul. I'm going to cut off the sermon right here at verse 17. And I'll pick that up next week and continue on into verse 18. I knew I was going to be um, a little long today. But I want to use a closing illustration that's a little more extended because I want you to understand what's happening here in this passage. So, uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say that uh, when he said everything he could possibly say he would load himself into the gospel revolver and fire himself at the congregation. And I feel a little like Spurgeon right now, because I'm going to use an example from something that happened this week to help you understand what's happening, what Paul wants us to get out of Romans chapter 8. This week, I joined a diet class. I have needed to lose about 20 pounds or so, and they have been very stubborn pounds. I figured I could pick up a few pointers. I could certainly use the accountability. And also, this little class at the YMCA, I could use it as a little evangelism fishing pond. As, as we're sitting in here talking to each other about our weight, it would be an easy thing to, to get into to uh, issues of the Gospel. So, uh, I joined this class. Um, Thursday was sitting in the classroom. I'm sorry, Tuesday sitting in the classroom. Thursday, um, the lady that's leading the class uh, had us out um, in the gym. And she told us how to use all the different uh, cardio machines. Well... I love a recumbent bike. You know, the idea of reclining while I... The posture of reclining uh, while I exercise, that is my kind of exercise. Um, and uh, so I told her, I'm an expert on the, the recumbent bike. She told me her words, recumbent bikes are for older people and small children and you are neither. <laughs> and so I... Uh, he said, "You see that elliptical over there? That's what you need to get on." I've never done the elliptical. You know, I look at it and they're going like this and the little leg, you know, and it just seems so complicated and I wonder if I'm um coordinated enough. So I get on this elliptical and it won't start until you start going and you have to punch all the buttons to get your right settings while you're while you're pumping your legs and I I've never been on this thing. Apparently I punched the wrong things. And uh so anyway, I set up the program and I'm going, and this I have never felt such pain. I was, I was my legs were screaming; they're still screaming, uh, and that was last Thursday. And uh, and I'm up there, and the setting is 20 minutes, and I'm saying I'm getting off this thing, but that lady's going to come over here, and she's going to say, "What are you doing?" And they're they're. A couple of people older than me on either side, and I'm looking at them, and they're going to town, and I'm just dying. And so, um, the uh, what I, I realized afterwards, I didn't realize it the whole time I was on the elliptical, but I had punched in a setting for like climbing a mountain, and so, and I had done. The the uh, the incline to like some insane and then the steps I, I read somewhere where the steps should be longer for a taller guy so I had gone up and so it was, but I, I'm not looking at at what's going on but it, apparently it goes up a mountain small little and then up another level and and so um anyway as I am on this um, on this. Elliptical. I'm having a real battle in my mind because I'm trying to do anything and everything to to make these 20 minutes. I tried not looking at the clock and and just counting in my head. I tried um, watching the TV. Nothing was working because there was all my attention was on on the pain that I was feeling in my legs. And so I started thinking well, how happy I will be when I finally hit um, 199 pounds and, uh, or I'll be better in shape for basketball. And then these people, they're on the other side of me, they're doing so much better than I am if they're able to do it. And finally, I was just left with, I've got eternal life if I have a coronary right here. And so, I made the 20 minutes um, but I would, My mindset was crucial. You live as Christians in this world, going, traveling through life with Romans chapter seven being your experience. And instead of going up a mountain, I mean, becoming, growing in Christ seems like going up a mountain. But it really feels like you're headed straight down to hell sometimes. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I hate, I end up doing. What a wretched man that I am. And it's real tempting to give up. And Paul, in verses 5 and 6, says your attitude of your mind is vital. And so that's why he's telling us you have a relationship with the triune God. That's why he's telling us that his power that work that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. That's why he says you are a child of God. Because when you are putting sins to death, and the battlefield is Romans chapter seven, it feels much more dire than the struggle I was having on that recumbent bike. I wanted to give up. But it all started here in the mind. And it's not mind over matter. It is God's promises. His truths that in your battle with sin, God wants you to win by remembering and dwelling upon the fact that you are His child. By remembering and dwelling upon the fact that God intimately knows you and that your relationship with Him, He welcomes you to the point that He invites you to say, Abba, Daddy, Father. And He tells you to remember and dwell upon the fact that His Spirit is at work and living in you. He wants you to remember and dwell upon the fact that you can be holy, that you can be obedient, that you can put sin to death. Because He is at work in you. How do you know He's at work in you? Well, at the end of Romans 8, He did not spare His own Son, but gave up His Son for you. So is He going to withhold anything that you need for your obedience?